A couple of years ago, I was at Toys R Us with Jillian. Never go to a toy store with your children. Just don't. Save yourself the trouble. But I learn in life the hard way sometimes. And so I was, at, I was needing to get a gift for a party, and I had Jillian with me, and I figured we could go in and out real quick. It'd be no problem. <laughs> Daddy, I want to go down the Barbie aisle. Daddy, can I? Daddy, stop. Stop. You're going too fast. Daddy, slow down. And uh, this was, again, a couple of years ago, and she found a game. She wanted this game. Daddy, can, can we get this game? Honey, I don't have the money for that game. We can't get the game. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. You have the money. No, I don't. I only have what I need for this gift. I don't have the money. Daddy, you have the money. I want this game. So back and forth we go, and finally she says this. Just use your credit card. Remember, she's a few years younger. She's about six, okay? And I'm like, dad speech number 42, accessing. Credit cards are a loan from the bank. You have to pay it back. It's not magic money, okay? It just doesn't come out of thin air. And I hear my dad in the background. Money doesn't grow on trees, okay? Right? And so, well, life goes on. She gets a little older. Um, Kids are great. Aren't they great about money when they're younger? Because they do. They think there is an endless supply of money. Just just go get some more. And so uh, after, after Jillian figured out that the credit card thing wouldn't work when she wanted something, I would get this phrase. Daddy, um, we need to go to the bank. You need to go to the bank. And so, you know, that was daddy speech number 562. You know, you have to put money in the bank to be able to take money out of the bank, right? Okay, isn't that how that works? Money in to get money out. Okay, and, and, but kids are like that. And you and I live in an age where uh, it's easy to think, it really is, it's easy to think that money just kind of appears. I mean, way back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, back in the 1950s, Eisenhower was president. You know, okay, it was a, we just, I don't, I read about it, okay, I don't know what that was like, but apparently, apparently, way back then, you know, everybody paid in cash. They didn't have Visa or MasterCard and stuff like that. And so if you needed something, you would go out and you would pay cash for it. And then, you know, life changed in America and somewhere in the 1990s, you know, credit cards and home equity and all that other stuff kind of came in vogue. And, and, and I don't blame kids today because they've grown up. I mean, they don't know the 1950s. They don't, you know, this. All they know is the 1990s or 2000s or whatever. And, and with lottery winners, I mean, on any given night in TV, there's that new ABC game show because the last ABC game show didn't work. But every time they give away a million dollars, don't they? You can, you know, if you can stack the cups, win a million bucks. You know, if you can, you know, zap the right, you know, you know, you know, let's make a deal. Boom, you know, a million bucks. Everybody's giving away a million bucks, and it's like instantaneous. Um, those of you that are hardened by life, you know that's just not true, is it? Money and stuff just don't come out of thin air, do they? Money and stuff comes from... It sounds like an old person thing, doesn't it? But money and stuff actually come from working. And and I want to talk about that today because really, think about it. Unless your last name is Smuckers, in in Williamsburg, Virginia, next door to my first uh, sister-in-law lived a young couple. They were in their late 20s. He didn't have a job. She didn't have a job. They lived in a $450,000 home. He played golf every day. Um, she, she had a full-time nanny. They had somebody who would come and cook for them on the weekends. It, it was amazing. They didn't work. But you know what their last name was? Smuckers. (laughs) 
the actual Smuckers from the jam, okay? So there you go. Unless your name is Smuckers or Gates or Buffett, <laughs> okay, there's a good chance that you're going to have to work, and, and you're going to have to work to get money. But the problem is, the problem is this, right? If you ask most Americans about their job, happy things don't happen, okay? When you ask most Americans, you know, tell me about your work. Tell me about your job. And then you get this stuff. And, and, and it's all kinds of stuff, right? It's the interpersonal people things. And, and maybe it's Bob in sales who's always hitting on everybody. And he has the slick back hair. And he thinks he's, he still wears the necklace. And you're like, button up your shirt, Bob. Oh, ooh, okay? You know, because Bob's 47 or whatever. And it's just he needs to button up, okay? And he's not getting it. And it drives you nuts, okay? Okay, and there's but there's the interpersonal stuff that goes on that that mean that that you hate your job for, or some of it is the pay and the hours. You know, you ca- I remember calculating once what my hourly rate was way back a long time ago, and it was like a dollar seventy-five. And I was like, okay, okay, so you know, but or, or it's the hours. You know, you work every weekend, all weekend, always the weekend, and everybody else is talking about how they had fun on the weekend, and you're like, but I work all weekend. Well, okay, so sometimes it's the pay or the hours. Sometimes it's the type of work or the tasks. You just hate, you know, I'm just not a data entry person. (laughs) You you have to force your hand to hit the button, you know, and you're like, carpal tunnel. I know I'm getting carpal tunnel, okay? And there's all kinds of reasons. There are all kinds of reasons why we hate work. Um, I've had a lot of jobs. Most pastors do. By the time they get to pastor, they've done just virtually everything. The one job I love I love the most, I love being a janitor. I just love that job. At the end of the day, at the end of the shift, everything was done. It looked pretty. The glass shimmered. You know, it was just all done. And then I love the people that I work with. I hated flu season. Kids in an elementary school in flu season, it's just the biggest moments of despair in my life were flu week in an elementary school as a janitor, okay? Um, and then the job I hated the most, I hated being a roofer. I was a roofer in 1998, or 1988, sorry, 1988. That summer, it was 98, 99 degrees every day, every day, with the heat index of, you know, we took a thermometer up on the roof, and it was like 140 degrees. And because I was the dumb college kid, I got all the tarring jobs. And so what they would do is that we would ride along in the truck, and they'd go, okay, Mark, here you go. And they'd throw off the tar and all that stuff, and they would drive off, and I'd be all by myself. Tar in the roof, flop, flop. And, you know, it bakes. You know, the, the sun is cooking that stuff, and then it get cooks on you. And, you know, when I, when I went back to college, you know, I qualified for scholarships because, you know, it was just cooks on you, okay? So, and I hated that job, but there's work. There's work, okay? Work, 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 work. Um, Sorry, I go, down, I go down these rabbit trails. You, you hate, there are things that you hate about your job, and, and we've talked about them. There are things that I've hated about different jobs that we have, but nonetheless, you still have it, don't you? Because there's that connection, work produces money. And I want to get into that today. Um, we younger people will use all kinds of reasons as to why we shouldn't work hard or why we shouldn't care about work. Um, on this end of the continuum, a lot of us who are younger will say, you know what, well, dad was a workaholic, and the older people, all they do is work, work, work all the time, It's just, and they think their whole life is work. You know what, I don't care. I don't care about work. I don't care about status. It's not important to me. Family's everything, and so we'll kind of carry that banner. Family first! 
and, and we'll use that kind of a, as, a, as a way to just get by at our job. You know, because family, that's more important at the end of the day, is family, baby. Or, or because the corporate policies that are in place at our job are just so stupid. Aren't some of the rules at your work just dumb? And especially if you work in government, there's all kinds of government rules that make no sense at all. And you're like, come on, can't you just, you know, let's all work together. You know, no. Section 4, paragraph 32. We will not all work together. You will work there. He will work there. You know, okay? So there's all this dumb. And so sometimes it's the dumb rules and things that are in play. And so that provides us a reason. We're just going to get by. You know what? Since they can't even come up with good ground rules, they don't deserve my best. And, and we'll have that attitude sometimes. Sometimes we'll have the attitude because there's injustice in the company we work for. They treat some people just horribly. And, and don't you know some people in some of the jobs you've had and how they've been treated? And then the other people were treated really great. Maybe the sales force was treated great. But then the people back in the mechanic shop were just throwing bones here and there. And it was horrible hours and horrible pay and everything else. And the sales guys were taken out to lunch left and right. And you're like, well, that's not fair. You're only getting the bonuses because they're fixing the cars, right? You know, and so you developed an attitude. Well, you know what? They don't deserve. They don't deserve my best. But here's the thing. In the Bible, God actually has some things to say about work. He does. Um, here's a few of them. In, in Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam a job, and he says, I want you to cultivate and work the garden. And for those of you that are really good theologians, you've already picked up on the fact that Genesis 2 is before sin entered the world in chapter 3. So work actually predates sin. God gave people work to do before people messed things up. And in fact, in the latter part of the Bible, God talks about work in the afterlife. I know because you're, some, of, some of our experiences are so bad, you say that and you're like, oh, no, uh-uh, sign me up for hell. Trust me, heaven's... <laughs> Heaven's better. It's better. I guarantee it. It's better. You don't want to go to the other place. It's just better. Even working there is better. It's better. Okay? All right? In Exodus chapter 34, God gives uh, uh, this, this commandment, and he says, I want you to work six days, and on the seventh day, you want to, I want you to rest. I don't want you to work at all. And, and we talk about the Sabbath a lot in church. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll have that sermon once a year or whatever on it. And, you know, Sabbath, keep the Sabbath, you know, unplug, rest, relax. How many sermons have you ever heard on the whole God, God saying, I want you to work six days? <laughs> I've never heard one, not one in my whole life. But there it is, and he repeats it several times throughout the Old Testament. I want you to work. I want you to work six days out of the seven. Not even giving us a two-day weekend, God. Okay, but you know we're going to get into that. Okay, and then in Second Thessalonians chapter three, Paul says, um, uh, "If you don't work and you're able to work, you don't eat." And when he and that reminds me of Grandpa John. Grandpa John would say that all the time. You don't work, you don't eat. You know, <laughs> he was a big man, and you're like, "Yes, sir." Um, the the bottom line today is really simple. Money. Money comes from working, and God expects us to work diligently. We're going to be in the book of Colossians, okay? Colossians chapter 3, and that's where we're going to be today. Colossians chapter 3. This is a letter that Paul wrote uh, to Christians in Coloss, the, the city. Um, and in this little section, chapter 3, verse 22, um, is a little section of the letter where he's talking about Christian households, and he's addressing this question. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, 
and you're a member of an oikos, you're a member of a family, a household, what, what does that look like exactly? I mean, how are you different now because Jesus is part of the mix? And so he talks about husbands and wives, he talks about parents and kids, and he talks about slaves and masters. And that's what we're going to get into now, the slaves and masters. But before we do that, I need to acknowledge something, right? Slavery is just wrong, okay? Hello? Slavery, bad, wrong, okay? Slavery is not cool. It's abhorrent to us, and rightfully so. And it would be easy. Some people will just go, oh, well, since Paul's talking about slaves, I'm just going to rip this part out right here. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. He was wrong. Well, wait a minute. If the Bible's true, and if God is actually using the Bible to try and say something to us, what's he trying to say? I think it's worth peeling away some of the immediate context and getting at what he's trying to say in this passage. And actually, God is trying to say something even though it's in the immediate context of slaves and masters. Um, There's several things about this that make Paul just weird in terms of the ancient world. Um, Paul, in this little section, when he's addressing slaves, um, he treats them as people. You know, back then they were just considered property. Ah, sorry about your luck, you're a slave, you're just a tool. And Paul's like, no, you're a person. You have inerrant worth. The other thing that Paul does that's just weird from an ancient world point of view is that Paul assumes that as a slave, you can make good choices. You can make noble choices and virtuous choices. Um, Again, the prevailing attitude of the day was, slaves are like three-year-olds. You know, got to tell them what to do, can't do anything on their own, bunch of idiots. Paul's like, no, 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 no. You're capable, and you can make good decisions. And the other thing that's just weird is that uh, Paul addresses masters and says, oh, yeah, you owners... You've got some responsibilities. You can't just do everything you think you want to do. And again, that makes him weird from this context and from the ancient context. But okay, so let's let's get into it and let's get past the immediate context, so to speak. In verse 22, you slaves must obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Obey them willingly because of your reverent fear of the Lord. And it literally says... uh, not by way of eye service, but with sincerity of heart. Eye service, eye service. What's he talking about? He's talking about slaves who would superficially go about their jobs and do stuff half-heartedly and not do things well. And then when the master showed up, (laughs) okay, when the master was looking, they would hop to and it would be, and we have a, you know, brown nosers, right? You know, you have people in your office who function that way, don't you, okay? That's what Paul's talking about here. And he's saying, look, look, don't just go through the motions. Don't just do superficial things. Don't just, you know, work hard when you're within an eye shot of your master. Work diligently all the time. And he gives the reason for it. He says, um, uh, out of reverent fear of the Lord, Okay, and then let's look at verse uh, 23, and here's the kicker. Work hard and cheerfully at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than people. And there's the clincher verse for me. And again, uh, forget the immediate context. I think there's a principle here, and the principle is simply this. Paul's addressing attitudes, and he's saying, you know what? There are some attitudes in the context of relationships that are good, and there's some attitudes that aren't so good. And in the context of your relationships, you ought to have an attitude that what you're doing 
you're not necessarily doing it just for that other person. You're doing it for your master, Jesus. And if that's your motivation, that's probably going to change how you do what it is you're doing. Isn't that a powerful principle? I think so. But it's stuck here in this context. But you can find it in other places in the New Testament. Okay? So he says, work hard. Um, work hard. Uh, and here's the thing. If you're here today and you're one of those people and you just work hard, and, and that's part of your personality and that's part of what you do, um, I want you to know something, and that is this. There's more to your context than meets the eye. In other words, just because your boss only sees half of what you do, God sees all of what you do. And he knows how diligently you're working, and he promises something in the next verse, and that's verse 24. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and the master you are serving is Christ. Okay, so Paul's saying this to slaves, and slaves in that, in that culture, in that time, in that context, they didn't get inheritances, and yet he's saying it right here in verse 24. You work diligently, you work as if you're working for the Lord, the Lord sees what you're doing, and he's going to reward you for it. Hang on, okay? And for those of us that maybe slack off and whatnot, remember, just because your boss isn't watching all the time, God is watching all the time, and he wants you to work diligently, okay? And then verse 25, he, he, he tells the opposite. But if you do what's wrong, you're going to get paid back for the wrong you've done, for God has no favorites who can get away with evil. In other words, if you do wrong, you're going to pay for it. But then the kicker is Paul doesn't stop there with just slaves, with just the people who are at the bottom of the food chain. He goes to the top of the food chain to masters, and he tells them something. You slave owners must be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Justice and fairness. And he's talking about an even-handed, impartial kind of a thing. And what he's saying to the slave owners is, hey, you guys can't just do anything you want to do. You have to adhere to God's standards of what God considers right and fair. And don't forget how God treated you. See, the bigger context for this is, how did God treat people? John tells us in the first chapter of John, uh, he came into the world and he was full of grace and truth. God has dealt with us graciously. Even though we deserved sin, he provided a way out. God's been gracious. And so Paul in this, in this verse here, when he's talking to the owners, when he's talking to the people at the top of the food chain, he's saying, hey, there's no reason for you to be harsh. Just because you're the big dog, just because you're the top of the food chain, just because they have to bow before you, doesn't mean that you, should, you can act any way that you want to act. You have a master in heaven. How did he treat you? Was he harsh with you? Did he whip you? Did he give you a big lecture when you messed up? How did God treat you? And so it's woven into that verse. Um, I know some of you are going, yeah, I wish my boss were here, okay? All right? And again, in this context, Paul isn't advocating slavery. He's talking about attitudes that are woven in the context of our relationships. And he's saying, look, if you're a kid, if you're a wife, if you're a slave, if you're at the bottom of the food chain, you can't just get by with bare minimum. You need to, you need to be doing 100%. And for the people at the top of the food chain, the dads, the husbands, the slave owners, he's saying, hey, you can't do just anything you want to do. You have to treat people the way God has treated you. So in, in light of this, I want to ask a few questions. And here's my first one. In light of the fact that there's a bigger context in your life and in my life, and the fact that God is watching, okay, it's, it's not just what the boss sees or doesn't see, would you work differently 
if Jesus Christ were your actual boss? Would the quality of your work be different if you were working for Jesus and not Billy Bob? Maybe you could ratchet that up. Okay, here's another question. If, uh, if you're the boss, if you're at the top of the food chain in your context, would you treat your employees differently if you saw them as Jesus? Um, would you be a little bit more gracious, a little bit more tempered, a little bit more understanding? Um, and then here's another one. Um, are there good reasons why you should be let go? I mean, seriously. I mean, sometimes I'll process with a believer after being let go from a company, and I'll ask the question, well, you know, did you see it coming? I mean, is it, is it legitimate? And I'm always floored when they're like, yeah, actually, you know, I didn't show up or, you know, <laughs> and there's all these things. And, you know, yeah, yeah, if I were the boss, I would have fired me. And, and so, you know, it, here in this passage, Paul's saying, hey, work, work hard. And then last question, have you been expecting to get something for nothing? Okay, have you been expecting to get something for nothing? Here's your homework, okay? For the next 30 days, if you have a job, I want you to do something that you might consider just absolutely awful, but I want you to try it, and that's this. Would you work diligently at your job? If you're a teacher, would you teach well and teach your kids and love them and, and what God wants you to do in that context? If, if you're a plumber, would you work hard to make the job right the first time? I mean, would you just work diligently for the next 30 days? And I know your coworkers might notice a change and they might, you know, start giving you grief. Just forget them. You're doing this for Jesus, not for them. Okay? Um, if you're here and you haven't made Jesus your Lord and Savior, I want to let you in on something. The expectation that you've had that Christians should be different and better, that Christian bosses should be different and better, that's a legitimate expectation. It is. And it's woven in this passage and many others. Christians should be diligent and honest and fair because that's, that's how God's treated us. Um, and so the expectations that you've had are legitimate. If you're here and you're a parent, I want you to do something absolutely radical, okay? If you've got kids and you've got kids at home, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick some chores that you pay your kids to do. Huh? I know. And then there's psychologists and they're like, no, they should just, they should just do them because they're part of the household. And that's fine. There may be some things in your house that you just do because you're a member of the household. Maybe it's like in our household, we pick the laundry up off the floor and it goes in the hamper. Hamper. This is a hamper. Okay. I, I, I feel strongly about that. Okay. You may too, okay? And maybe that's just something you do. But there might be other things in your house that you could pay your kids to do. Why would you do this? Because if you start doing this and, and they, they're paid to do stuff when they're 9, 10, 11, 13, 14, 15, by the time they're 18, 19, 20, there's a concrete connection in their head. Money doesn't go on trees. Money comes from working wouldn't it i mean seriously as a parent wouldn't you want your kids when they're 20 to have this huge connection where oh yeah i want money i need to work right because you don't want them to be living with you until they're 45 right i mean there's this part of you that's like we're going to be alone again okay you know think it think right there's your motivation guys right there okay the being just the two of us again okay you want them to have a job okay so um, there's, there's your second homework assignment. If, you, if you've got kids, pick some chores and actually pay them to do it. Here's why this is important. You and I live in an, uh, an entitlement culture. It's a culture that says, well, you know, I should have, hmm, 
you know, I deserve. And, and, and there's a part of our culture that, that's like, well, you just go have it and get it and it'll drop out of the sky. And it doesn't work that way, does it? It's going to take some work to get money, to get stuff. And, and, and you want your kids to have that. You want to have that. And so this is why this is important. Um, again, money and stuff comes from working. And God wants you and me to work diligently. And when we do that, we please our Heavenly Father.